0: How we live as Christians, uh, it it matters. Um, Using gospel words to witness to an unbelieving world certainly matters. And I feel like that's something that I talk about quite a bit, that we can't just be good people and expect that someone will connect those good works to Jesus and then give their lives to Christ and trust in him we we have to speak gospel words uh, but Peter here is so good to remind us that how we live is critical in order to witness to an unbelieving world in order to tell people that have not yet trusted in Jesus to show people that haven't trusted in Jesus that that he is our only hope if you've been saved by Jesus, your life should be different, right? If, if, uh, if someone told you they were a bodybuilder, you would expect to see certain things in their lives, certainly large muscles. Uh, you would expect that a bodybuilder goes to the gym a lot. Uh, you'd probably expect that they take supplements, maybe steroids as well, Um, that they care about their diet. Uh, A bodybuilder should be identifiable, not just by their giant muscles, but by the way they live their lives. The world certainly notices when Christians say they've been saved by Jesus, but their lives look really no different than the world. And Peter is helping us answer this question, how do Christians live godly lives during our exile? And he's given us very practical instruction and examples on living holy lives with this purpose of witnessing to an unbelieving world. And last week, we looked at uh, living under uh, the, the authorities, the governing authorities over us. This week, we will look at how how we live, how we endure when we're treated unjustly, how we suffer for the name of Jesus. Next week, we'll we'll look at wives and husbands. We're looking at how how do all Christians live godly lives that point to our great God. So if you have your Bibles, we're in uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect Bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, This is our truth statement for this passage. While in exile, we are called to endure unjust suffering by following Christ's example in order to witness to non-Christians. I'll read that again. While in exile, we are called to endure unjust suffering by following Christ's example in order to witness to non-Christians. last week's passage included verses 11 and 12, and and we need to keep those verses in mind this week and next week. In verse 11, Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As God's exiled people, we are to keep our conduct honorable around non-Christians as a witness to them, as a testimony to how excellent God is. And Peter, he, he's trying to shape our Christian identity. And, and one of the u- words he uses often is exiles. We're to live as strangers in this world knowing that this is not our home, that our hope is not in this life, in the comforts of this life, in the rewards of this life. We're, we're exiles that look forward to our glorified home. It's funny, but um, wearing a mask has actually been uh, a reminder to me that we are exiles. I was in Kohl's um, wearing a mask, standing in line, looking around at other people wearing masks and just going, man, this is so weird, right? And I'm not, I'm not making a statement about masks. I'm just saying, it, i just thought this is not all that's cracked up to be this world, right? This isn't it. And every someday we'll hopefully all stop wearing masks, but, but we cannot be fooled into thinking that this world is it. And every time I put on a mask, I've just been thinking, I'm an exile. I'm an exile. We're exiles in this life. Now, those who were exiled, they, they normally had two, um, Two ways of responding to exile. One way is, is that as the oppressors brought them into this new land, they, they just fully assimilated to this new culture. They took on their beliefs, their, uh, their, their uh, ways of living food, uh, their ways of viewing the world, everything. They, they just fully uh, adopted the culture that they're in. That's one option. The second option is that you rebel. You rebel from your oppressors who brought you into this new land. You resist in every way that you can. You're a thorn in the side of this culture. But God told his people that they're actually to live a completely different way as exiles. In Jeremiah, God told his people to seek the welfare of the city, of of their captors. They were to be a blessing. they were still to completely follow God, right? They were not to compromise, but they were to be a blessing. They were to pray for the welfare of the city they were in, of the oppressors. Daniel is a story where where we really get to see this lived out. He's recruited to work in the high court of Babylon because of his education, because of his background. So he was going to work for the king, right? His whole job was to help the king. And this could seem like a compromise to serve in the royal court of your oppressor. But Daniel and his friends take God's word in Jeremiah seriously. They sought the welfare of the king. They submit to the king as long as it doesn't interfere with submitting to and honoring God. And if you've read Daniel, you know there are several times where they resist the pressure of the culture or even the orders of the culture to conform and they show their faithfulness to Yahweh. Right? They, they literally will not bow down to anyone but Yahweh. And by doing this, they testify to who the true king is, that Yahweh alone is to be worshipped and they're willing to lay down their lives for this. A couple of different times, the result of their faithfulness to Yahweh and them not conforming to culture in this foreign land, the king ends up proclaiming how good God is, how incredible God is, that there is no one like God. And this is a king that has many foreign gods in his land. So when we think of exile living, Daniel is really, really helpful. He's an excellent picture for us, of what our lives are to look like. And, and, and this is what Peter wants from us to remember that we are exiles, because this helps us stay the course of our mission to this world. Back in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, Remember, you're, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This week, Peter fleshes out what it looks like to be in exile, witnessing to the world in, in a certain type of circumstance. The situation is in this passage is that of, of a servant. And as a Christ follower, you're called to submit to that master, that boss, even when they're nasty to you, even when they mistreat you, even when you're cheated or, or your name is slandered, when, when your good isn't recognized when your hard work is dismissed. Verse 18 it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And your translation might, instead of servants, say slaves. Matt Q, several weeks ago, talked about the meaning of words and, and how we import. Um, the meaning of words into the biblical text, oftentimes without even knowing it. So when we read slaves, we have a very specific picture in mind because of the history of our country. And we know that Scripture was was twisted and manipulated to justify slavery. There are several passages, though, that, that actually make Scripture's view of slavery clear. 1 Timothy 1 is one that helps us to see that, that what happened in our history was horrible, horribly sinful. And in verses 8 through 11, he gives a list uh, of items that are contrary to sound doctrine, Right, a list of behaviors that are not in line with the gospel. And one of those items in the list is this noun translated enslavers. This is a person who would take another person captive in order to sell them into slavery. Right? The Bible is not for slavery It's not for the, the, the slavery that we think of when, when, uh, when we come to this text. So when it reads servants or slaves or when we read masters, it's, it's important that we know, uh, we know about the slavery. The word that Peter uses here comes uh, from the Greek genre of household terms. Pastor David Helm, he points out some key distinctions between the slavery in our country's history and in the ancient Roman world. There were three classes in ancient Rome of people. Uh, There was the Roman citizen who had full rights. They had total protection under the law. Under them, the freedmen who had restricted restricted protection under the law and yet still enjoyed a good deal of autonomy. And, And then the servant class. And these were men and women employed as managers and household workers. They ran the agrarian workplace, and, and this is this is the example that Peter is giving us of of these people. And it's hard to come up with a modern day parallel. I, I read I read some different attempts at, at a modern day parallel. Um, the, the best one I saw is this. So um, one of my best friends growing up, he uh, always wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. Since we were in elementary school, like he would talk about it all the time. He, he wanted to be a, a Top Gun pilot. So he, uh, after graduating high school, he went to the Air Force Academy um, and, and got a free education. right? But upon graduation, he owed the Air Force several years of service. In, in a sense, he was not a free man for an agreed-upon amount of time. They told him where to live, and in many ways, they told him how to live. There came eventually an end to this owed term of service, and and then he was free to leave and do whatever he wanted. Slavery in our nation uh, clearly was not like that, so so we can't read uh, our country's history into this. Today, Peter gives us an example of of a servant slave that's being treated unjustly, and this doesn't mean that, that this instruction was only to... Uh, the servants in the early churches that were hearing this letter, right? What we learn here applies to all believers. He's simply giving us a real world example of how exiles live out verses 11 and 12. So, this instruction is for all people, how, how all Christians live godly lives. We submit. And as we'll see, this is a witness to God, and there will be some that trust in Him because of this Christian testimony. So Peter instructs servants to submit, not not just to good masters, but even to bad ones, even when you're mistreated, he says to submit. And there are passages in scripture, uh, I hope it's like this for you, that you read a passage And you just want to shout, yes, Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us this in the Bible. This happened to me just this week. I was praying with some other local pastors, and we prayed and read through John 14 and 15. And, And it was just like... It was like f- this cold water after hiking for hours and hours in the heat, this water that, that I, I just gulped down. I know for you, or I hope for you, that, that you come to parts of Scripture and it is so refreshing. But this passage might feel differently to you. Both passages are exactly what we need, but I feel it differently here. I'm not a fan of submitting. I don't want that, my pride doesn't want to submit. I don't really even like submitting to a good boss, let alone one who mistreats me. My MO, if someone wrongs me, is to get revenge. If someone hurts me, my natural response is to get the upper hand. My flesh doesn't like to hear that submitting is the way of Christ. (laughs) I'm an adult, right? I'm a full grown man, I don't want to submit. I don't know any person that just naturally wants to submit, right? At a minimum, I want people to think that I'm strong, that I'm tough. I don't want to look weak, even though inside I know I'm not that tough. I don't know if you heard about the couple uh, a few weeks ago in Australia that was surfing. Um, Husband and wife, they're surfing, and this juvenile great white shark comes and bites Uh, chomps on to the wife's leg and the husband jumps off his surfboard onto the shark's back and begins to pummel the shark until the shark lets go. That, that's what, I want to be tough, right? I I don't want to submit even to a great white shark. I told my wife this story and then I said to her, I love you. I sincerely hope that I would do that for you but I don't know what would happen. I I, I know, I know I'm not that tough. I picture myself like trying to jump on the shark and totally missing or slipping off its back. I don't know, but I want, I don't want to show weakness, right? I don't want to submit. The way of the world is not submitting, but Peter tells us the way of the Christian is to submit. And I think I think that helps us answer a big question here in this passage. How does submitting glorify God? How does this help people see the excellencies of God and turn to faith in Him? Submitting is totally countercultural. It's against the ways of this world to submit. When Christians submit, they're showing something starkly different than this world, which some people will mock, right? Some people will, will write us off as stupid or even weak, But some will take notice. God will use this shocking way of living for some in the world to see how Jesus' people live, that it's different. It isn't just strange, but it's glorious. Some will look more closely and what they'll notice, instead of believers looking weak, they'll notice that it reveals a strength as believers trust in God. And the strength is only by God's grace that he supplies so, how? How will it witness to the world? Will it point to a trust in God, our Savior? How is this even possible? Verse 19, Peter says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And, and he uses this word grace all throughout the letter. It's only by grace that, that a, a Christ follower can submit and endure unjust suffering. And he says this happens by being mindful of God. The believer has God in mind. God is in view as they suffer. You will not endure unjust suffering naturally. My old nature had nothing to do with God. So like I said, when I'm wronged, my old nature, uh, the, the mindset was how do I make myself look better? Right? How can I be less embarrassed by what has happened? How can I, how can I help my damaged pride? How can I make that person who just made me look like a fool? How can I make them look even more foolish? But the believer, they're, they're mindful of God. They're concerned with God being glorified. They're concerned with Christians seeing how good God is. Verse 20 says, for what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We get that when we do evil, suffering makes sense, that we should be punished for when we do wrong. But when you do good and suffer for good, when someone wrongs you, when someone makes up a lie about you or cheats you in a business transaction, as we're mindful of God, We don't return evil for evil. Instead, we return good for evil. Even though we're not wired this way, we don't naturally think this way. So Peter has to tell us, and many of us, maybe even all of us have this belief, whether we've stated it before or not, that if we do good, good should return to me. And sometimes that will be the case, but certainly not always. Peter says, when you do good, you will suffer. There will be times that you do good and you're treated unfairly. There'll be times that you do good and you'll be attacked or you'll be hurt. When you do good, sometimes no one will notice. No one will give you that pat on the back or worse yet, they might notice and not give you credit. Maybe they'll even steal the credit. And Peter tells us that God sees this as a gracious thing. Certainly the only way that we can endure unjust suffering is by the grace of God. Peter says this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And I take that to mean that as we endure, we're not only living through God's grace, but but we're living out God's grace. We're demonstrating how gracious and how good God is. Verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called. We've been called to this. Christians, as we think of called, we think of, or at least I think of being called into ministry. Maybe we say uh, they're being called to the mission field or being called to serve, maybe to serve as an elder. But P- Peter says to all Christians, to this, you have been called to this purpose. You've been called to suffer unjustly. Man, there's no prosperity gospel there. When we suffer, how often do we think of this as what God has actually called us to? How often do we see this as the work of God, that God has willed it? And maybe as I say that, you squirm a little bit, but I'm just sampling from what Peter says later. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Then 419, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Why why would God will that we suffer? Well, one reason this passage gives to us, right? That we can testify to the world because it points to our suffering Savior as Matt read for us in Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, Another reason we find in, in Romans 8, That God is using all things from good to bad and everything in between. He's using it to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. He's refining us. when I think about it this way, I'm actually comforted to know that God wills my suffering. That God is in control of it. My suffering isn't random. That would really scare me if my suffering was random. Let me make maybe an odd comparison for a moment uh, to a roller coaster. I'm not a thrill seeker, right? I I, I bet if I asked uh, at least guys in the audience today, how many of you have driven over 100, I bet 90% of the hands have been raised of those people that can drive already. I'm not that guy, I've never driven over 100. I I don't like uh, downhill skiing because it's too fast for me. I don't like inner tubing on a boat because going 10 miles an hour on a boat is too fast for me, right? I'm not a thrill seeker. Um, I used to be really afraid of roller coasters and and then everything clicked for me one day. Um, uh, There's this track, obviously, that the roller coaster is on. They've paid engineers a ton of money to plan out how this track works and how the car works on the track. It's been thought through, it's been tested. I know that the car is designed to go exactly where it's intended to. If a roller coaster was somehow random or left a chance, I would never get on one. Knowing that my suffering is willed by God, that it's used by God in my life and potentially in the lives of people who do not know him yet, that brings me great assurance that my suffering won't be for nothing, that God is using it and God is faithful, right? God provides for his people as they suffer for his name. Make no mistake. He will not leave you or forsake you. Instead, he will sustain you. He will give you what is needed. He will grace you with what you need to remain in him, to trust in him. And that might be daily bread, right? God giving you just what you need for this day. And then the next day he does it again. Peter tells us in the end of verse 21 that Jesus is our example, that we can follow uh, the one who suffered unjustly for our sake. And Peter isn't asking us to do some radical thing that our Savior did not already do. If Jesus suffered when he had done nothing wrong, man, what's my excuse for not being willing to suffer? But when mindful of God, right, when I find myself cheated or slandered, my flesh wants to get back at them, but I remember that Jesus suffered. Okay, Lord, give me the strength then. Give me the grace to endure this suffering. Help me to suffer like Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Verse 22. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, I'm guessing that most of us have wondered how in the world did Jesus stay upon that cross? How did he let himself die for our sin when he had done nothing wrong? He never once had sinned. I imagine that the perfect sense of justice, the perfect understanding of justice that Jesus had in him, right? Knowing what the people who had done, who pounded the nails into him, knowing what their sin deserved, I'm sure that he felt that sense of justice as he suffered and died and yet he didn't threaten, he didn't strike back, he didn't revile in return. Well, how it says he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How good it is to know that God's judgment is perfectly just, that one day God will perfectly execute his justice. Jesus could suffer without reviling in return and as he was mocked, without striking back because he entrusted himself to the Father. How good it is to entrust yourself to the Father, knowing that he will judge perfectly. He will judge justly. Jesus is our example in enduring unjust suffering. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed and as one commentator wrote Christ's suffering is our model because it's our salvation it doesn't simply guide us it is the root of all our motivation to follow Jesus our living to righteousness follows in Christ's steps because we died to sin in his atonement so Jesus His suffering isn't simply an example for us, right? It is our salvation. Without his atoning sacrifice, this passage would lose its point. Jesus bore our sins to the cross, on the cross, so that we can die to sin and live with him to righteousness. It was by his suffering by his wounds that we have been healed. And that is such an amazing statement. We heard it read in Isaiah 53 earlier. Being healed by someone's wounds outside of the context of scripture would be totally nonsensical. How could someone else's wounds heal? And yet that is exactly what Christ has done for us. And this is what the world needs to know, right? That Jesus suffered and died so that they can be forgiven, that God's love for them is so great that Jesus who knew no sin became sin for them, died in our place. And we get to be this picture, even if it's a, even if it's a tiny picture, we get to be this picture of the suffering servant. Our, our little examples of suffering point to Jesus. Matt read this earlier in, in Isaiah 53 verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all what would you do so that someone could know jesus peter tells us this is a way that non-christians will see god what if we started to see suffering As an opportunity what what if we prayed as we're wronged Lord would you use this suffering to show this person Christ what if as we suffer instead of first thinking about our rights we would think about the salvation we would we would wonder God are you going to use this in some great way or some small way to bring this person into a relationship with you this verse or this chapter closes Verse 25, and actually I'll invite the band up as, as I wrap up here. Peter says, For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love that Jesus is described as our shepherd, right? The the spotless lamb is our shepherd. He he cares for us. He seeks us. He's described here as the overseer, the one who cares for his sheep. He's been charged to protect and care for the souls of his flock. Christians, we will suffer. That's been promised to us. We are called to suffer and to endure. Are you willing to follow Christ's example and endure unjust suffering as a testimony to those who have not yet trusted the Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that, that we don't just battle our flesh on our own. We thank you for Peter's very words here that, that help us to know that, that we've been called to live this way, to submit to unjust suffering, that, that we would submit in this world so that people could, could know you, Lord. Jesus, I pray that you would change our mindset Lord, that instead of saying, why me, that that we would be eager for the opportunity. And and that sounds crazy, Lord, but that we'd be be eager and ready for the opportunity for you to use us to point to Jesus, to point to the one who took our place, who took on our sin, who died and rose again so that we could die to our sin and, and live with you in righteousness, Lord. God, would you increase our hearts for this world? Would would you make us a people that just long for the world to know what we have in you? To long to know that, that, God, you loved us so much that you sent your only son to die for us, Lord. And that in you we can be reconciled to the creator of all things. Jesus, as we sing these songs, I pray that this would just be worship. Lord, from our hearts, that we would sing truth about you and to you, that we would remind one another of the God that we serve, the God that we follow, the God that is worth everything. Lord, would you be our treasure, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.